Part five The Following of the Trail Chapters forty seven, forty eight, forty nine of the Blaze Trail by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter forty seven. In the meantime, the main body of the crew under Thorpe and his foreman were briskly tumbling the logs into the current. Sometimes under the urging of the peavies, but a single stick would slide down, or again a double tier would cascade with the roar of a little Niagara. The men had continually to keep on the tension of an alert, for at any moment they were called upon to exercise their best judgment and quickness to keep from being carried downward with the rush of the logs. Not infrequently a frowning sheer wall of forty feet would hesitate on the brink of plunge. Then Shearer proved himself his right to the title of Riverman. Shearer wore cocks nearly an inch in length. He had been known to ride ten miles, without shifting his feet, on a log so small that he could carry it without difficulty. For cool nerve he was unexcelled. "'I don't need you boys here any longer,' he said quietly. When the men had all withdrawn, he walked confidently under the front of the rollway, glancing with practiced eye at the perpendicular wall of logs over him. Then, as a man prized Jack's draws, he clamped his peavey and tugged sharply. At once the rollway flattened and toppled. A mighty splash, a hurl of flying foam and crushing timbers, and the spot on which the riverman had stood was buried beneath twenty feet of solid green wood. To Thorpe it seemed that Shearer must have been overwhelmed, but the riverman always mysteriously appeared at one side or the other, nonchalant, urging the men to work before the log should have ceased to move. Tradition claimed that only once in a long wood's life had Shearer been forced to take water before a breaking rollway, and then he saved his peavey. History stated that he had never lost a man on the river simply and solely because he invariably took the dangerous tasks upon himself. As soon as the logs had caught the current, a dozen men urged them on. With their short peavies the drivers were enabled to prevent the timbers from swirling in the eddies, one of the first causes of a jam. At last, near the foot of the flats, they abandoned them to the stream, confident that Maloney and his crew would see to their passage down the river. In three days the rollways were broken. Now it became necessary to start the rear. For this purpose Billy Camp, the cook, had loaded his cook-stove, a quantity of provisions, and a supply of bedding aboard a scow. The scow was built of tremendous hewn timbers, four or five inches thick, to withstand the shock of the logs. At either end were long sweeps to direct its course. The craft was perhaps forty feet long, but rather narrow in order that it might pass easily through the chute of a dam. It was called the Wanigan. Billy Camp, his cookie, and his crew of two were now doomed to tribulation. The huge, unwieldy craft from that moment was to become possessed of the devil. Down the white water of rapids it would bump, smashing obstinately against boulders, impervious to the frantic urging of the long sweeps. Against the roots and branches of the stream-side it would scrape with the perverseness of a vicious horse. In the broad reaches it would sulk, refusing to proceed, and when expediency demanded its pause, it would drag Billy Camp and his entire crew at the rope's end while they tried vainly to snub it against successively uprooted trees and stumps. When at last the wanigan was moored fast for the night, usually a mile or so below the spot planned, 
Billy Camp pushed back his battered old brown derby hat, the badge of his office, with a sigh of relief. To be sure, he and his men had still to cut wood, construct cooking and campfires, pitch tents, snip brows, and prepare supper for seventy men. But the hard work of the day was over. Billy Camp did not mind rain or cold. He would cheerfully cook away with the water dripping from his battered derby to his chubby and cold purple nose. But he did mind the wannigan. And the worst of it was, he got no sympathy nor aid from the crew. From either bank he and his anxious struggling assistants were greeted with ironic cheers and facetious remarks. The tribulations of the wannigan were as the salt of life to the spectators. Billy Camp tried to keep back of the rear in clear water, but when the wannigan so disposed he found himself jammed close in the logs. There he had a chance in his turn to become spectator, and so to repay in kind some of the irony and facetiousness. Along either bank, among the bushes, on sandbars and in trees, hundreds and hundreds of logs had been stranded when the main drive passed. These logs the rear crew were engaged in restoring to the current, and as a man had to be able to ride any kind of a log in any water, to propel that log by jumping on it, by rolling it squirrel-fashion with the feet, by punting it as one would a canoe, to be skillful in pushing, prying, and poling other logs from the quarter-deck of the same cranky craft as he must be prepared at any and all times to jump waist-deep into the river, to work in ice-water hours at a stretch, as he was called upon to break the most dangerous jams on the river, representing, as they did, the accumulation which the jam-crew had left behind them, it was naturally considered the height of glory to belong to the rear crew. Here were the best of the fighting forty, men with a reputation as white-water burlers, men afraid of nothing. Every morning the crews were divided into two sections under Curly and Jack Highland. Each crew had charge of one side of the river, with the task of cleaning it thoroughly of all stranded and entangled logs. Scotty Parsons exercised a general supervisory eye over both crews. Shearer and Thorpe traveled back and forth the length of the drive, riding the logs downstream, but taking to a partly submerged pole trail when ascending the current. On the surface of the river in the clear water floated two long, graceful boats called bateaux. These were in charge of expert boatmen, men able to propel their craft swiftly forwards, backwards, and sideways through all kinds of water. They carried in racks a great supply of pike poles, peavies, axes, rope, and dynamite for use in various emergencies. Intense rivalry existed as to which crew sacked the farthest downstream in the course of the day. There was no need to urge the men. Some stood upon the logs, pushing mightily with the long pike-poles. Others, waist-deep in the water, clamped the jaws of their peavies into the stubborn timbers, and, shoulder-bent, slid them slowly but surely into the swifter waters. Still others, lining up on either side of one of the great brown tree-trunks, carried it boldly to its appointed place. From one end of the rear to the other, shouts, calls, warnings, and jokes flew back and forth. Once or twice a vast roar of homeric laughter went up as some unfortunate slipped and soused into the water. When the current slacked and the logs hesitated in their run, the entire crew hastened, bobbing from log to log, down river to see about it. Then they broke the jam, standing surely on the edge of the great darkness, while the ice-water sucked in and out of their shoes. 
Behind the rear, Big Junko pulled his bateau backwards and forwards, exploding dynamite. Many of the bottom tiers of logs in the rollways had been frozen down, and Big Junko had to loosen them from the bed of the stream. He was a big man, this as his nickname indicated, built of many awkwardnesses. His cheekbones were high, his nose flat, his lips thick and slobbery. He sported a wide, ferocious, straggling mustache and long eyebrows, under which gleamed little fierce eyes. His forehead sloped back like a beast, but was always hidden by a disreputable felt hat. Big Junko did not know much, and had the passions of a wild animal, but he was a reckless riverman and devoted to Thorpe. Just now he exploded dynamite. The sticks of powder were piled amidships. Big Junko crouched over them, inserting the fuses and caps, closing the openings with soap, finally lighting them, and dropping them into the water alongside, where they immediately sank. Then a few strokes of a short paddle took him barely out of danger. He huddled down in his craft, waiting. One, two, three seconds passed. Then a hollow boom shook the stream. A cloud of water sprang up, strangely beautiful. After a moment the great brown logs rose suddenly to the surface from below, one after the other, like leviathans of the deep and Junko watched, dimly fascinated, in his rudimentary animal's brain, by the sight of the power he had evoked to his aid. When night came the men rode downstream to where the Wanigan had made camp. There they slept, often in blankets wetted by the Wanigan's eccentricities, to leap to their feet at the first cry in the early morning. Some days it rained, in which case they were wet all the time. Almost invariably there was a jam to break, though strangely enough almost every one of the old-timers believed implicitly that in the full of the moon logs will run free at night. Thorpe and Tim Shearer nearly always slept in a dog-tent at the rear, though occasionally they passed the night at Dam too, where Brian Maloney and his crew were already engaged in sluicing the logs through the chute. The affair was simple enough. Long booms arranged in the form of an open V guided the drive to the sluice-gate, through which a smooth apron of water rushed to turmoil in an eddying pool below. Two men tramped steadily backwards and forwards on the booms, urging the logs forward by means of long pike poles to where the suction could seize them. Below the dam the push of the sluice water forced them several miles downstream, where the rest of Brian Maloney's crew took them in charge. Thus through the wide gate nearly three-quarters of a million feet an hour could be run, a quantity more than sufficient to keep pace with the exertions of the rear. The matter was, of course, more or less delayed by the necessity of breaking out such rollways as they encountered from time to time on the banks. At length, however, the last of the logs drifted into the wide dam pool. The rear had arrived at dam too, and Thorpe congratulated himself that one stage of his journey had been completed. Bill Camp began to worry about shooting the Wanigan through the sluiceway. End of chapter 47 Chapter 48 The rear had been tending at the dam for two days, and was about ready to break camp, when Jimmy Powers swung across the trail to tell them of the big jam. Ten miles along the riverbed the stream dropped over a little half-falls into a narrow, rocky gorge. It was always an anxious spot for the river-drivers. In fact, the plunging of the logs head-on over the fall had so gouged out the soft rock below that an eddy of great power had formed in the basin. 
Shearer and Thorpe had often discussed the advisability of constructing an artificial apron of logs to receive the impact. Here, in spite of all efforts, the jam had formed, first a little center of a few logs in the middle of the stream, dividing the current, and shunting the logs to right and left, then wings growing out from either bank, built up from logs shunted too violently, finally a complete stoppage of the channel, and the consequent rapid piling up as the pressure of the drive increased. Now the bed was completely filled, far above the level of the falls, by a tangle that defied the jam crew's best efforts. The rear at once took the trail down the river. Thorpe and Shearer and Scotty Parsons looked over the ground. "'She may pull if she gets a good start,' decided Tim. Without delay the entire crew was set to work. Nearly a hundred men can pick a great many logs in the course of a day. Several times the jam started, but always plugged before the motion had become irresistible. This was mainly because the rocky walls narrowed at a slight bend to the west, so that the drive was throttled, as it were. It was hoped that perhaps the middle of the jam might burst through here, leaving the wings stranded. The hope was groundless. "'We'll have to shoot,' Shearer reluctantly decided. The men were withdrawn. Scotty Parsons cut a sapling twelve feet long and trimmed it. Big Junko thawed his dynamite at a little fire, opening the ends of the packages in order that the steam generated might escape. Otherwise the pressure inside the oiled paper of the package was capable of exploding the whole affair. When the powder was warm, Scotty bound twenty of the cartridges around the end of the sapling, adjusted a fuse in one of them, and soaked the opening to exclude water. Then Big Junko thrust the long javelin down into the depths of the jam, leaving a thin stream of smoke behind him as he turned away. With sinister evil eye he watched the smoke for an instant, then zigzagged awkwardly over the jam, the long ridiculous tails of his brown cutaway coat flopping behind him as he leaped. A scant moment later the hoarse dynamite shouted. Great chunks of timber shot to an inconceivable height. Entire logs lifted bodily into the air with the motion of a fish jumping. A fountain of water gleamed against the sun and showered down in fine rain. The jam shrugged and settled. That was all. The shot had failed. The men ran forward, examining curiously the great hole in the log formation. "'We'll have to flood her,' said Thorpe. So all the gates of the dam were raised, and the torrent tried its hand. It had no effect. Evidently the affair was not one of violence, but one of patience. The crew went doggedly to work. Day after day the clank-clank-clink of the peavies sounded with the regularity of machinery. The only practicable method was to pick away the flank logs, leaving a long tongue pointing downstream from the center to start when it would. This happened time and again, but always failed to take with it the main jam. It was cruel hard work. A man who has lifted his utmost strength into a peavy knows that. Any but the fighting forty would have grumbled. Collins, the bookkeeper, came up to view the tangle. Later a photographer from Marquette took some views, which, being exhibited, attracted a great deal of attention, so that by the end of the week a number of curiosity-seekers were driving over every day to see the big jam. A certain Chicago journalist in search of balsam health of lungs even sent to his paper a little item. This, unexpectedly, brought Wallace Carpenter to the spot. Although reassured as to the gravity of the situation, he remained to see. 
the place was an amphitheatre for such as chose to be spectators. They could stand or sit on the summit of the gorge cliffs overlooking the river, the fall, and the jam. As the cliff was barely sixty feet high, the view lacked nothing in clearness. At last Shearer became angry. "'We've been monkeying long enough,' said he. "'Next time we'll leave a center that will go out. We'll shut the dams down tight and dry-pick out two wings that'll start her.' The dams were first run at full speed and then shut down. Hardly a drop of water flowed into the bed of the stream. The crews set laboriously to work to pull and roll the logs out in such flat fashion that a head of water should send them out. This was even harder work than the other, for they had not the floating power of water to help them in the lifting. As usual, part of the men worked below, part above. Jimmy Powers, curly-haired, laughing-faced, was irrepressible. He badgered the others until they threw bark at him and menaced him with their peavies. Always he had, at his tongue's end, the proper quip for the occasion, so that in the long run the work was lightened by him. When the men stopped to think at all, they thought of Jimmy Powers with very kindly hearts, for it was known that he had had more trouble than most, and that the coin was not made too small for him to divide with a needy comrade. To those who had seen his mask of whole-souled good nature fade into serious sympathy, Jimmy Powers' poor little jokes were very funny indeed. "'Did you see the Swede at the circus last summer?' he would howl to Red Jacket on the top tier. "'No,' Red Jacket would answer. "'Was he there?' "'Yes,' Jimmy Powers would reply. Then, after a pause, "'In a cage.' It was a poor enough jest, yet if you had been there you would have found that somehow the log had in the meantime leaped of its own accord from that difficult position. Thorpe approved thoroughly of Jimmy Powers. He thought him a good influence. He told Wallace so, standing among the spectators on the cliff-top. "'He is all right,' said Thorpe. "'I wish I had more like him. The others are good boys, too.' Five men were at that moment tugging futilely at a reluctant timber. They were attempting to roll one end of it over the side of another projecting log, but were continually foiled because the other end was jammed fast. Each bent his knees, inserting his shoulder under the projecting peavy stock to straighten in a mighty effort. "'Hire a boy! Get some powder of junco! Have Jimmy talk it out! Try that little one over by the corner!' called the men on top of the jam. Everybody laughed, of course. It was a fine spring day, clear-eyed and crisp, with a hint of new foliage in the thick buds of the trees. The air was so pellucid that one distinguished without difficulty the straight entrance to the gorge a mile away, and even the west bend fully five miles distant. Jimmy Powers took off his cap and wiped his forehead. "'You boys,' he remarked politely, "'think you are boring with a mighty big auger.' "'My God!' screamed one of the spectators on top of the cliff. At the same instant Wallace Carpenter seized his friend's arm and pointed. Down the bed of the stream from the upper bend rushed a solid wall of water several feet high. It flung itself forward with the headlong impetus of a cascade. Even in the short interval between the visitor's exclamation and Carpenter's rapid gesture it had loomed into sight, twisted a dozen trees from the river bank, and foamed into the entrance of the gorge. An instant later it collided with the tail of the jam. Even in the railroad rush of these few moments several things happened. Thorpe leaped for a rope. The crew working on top of the jam ducked instinctively to the right and left and began to scramble toward safety. 
the men below, at first bewildering and not comprehending, finally understood, and ran towards the face of the jam with the intention of clambering up it. There could be no escape in the narrow canyon below, the walls of which rose sheer. Then the flood hit square. It was the impact of resistible power. A great sheet of water rose like surf from the tail of the jam. A mighty cataract poured down over its surface, lifting the free logs. From either wing timbers crunched, split, rose suddenly into racked prominence, twisted beyond the semblance of themselves. Here and there single logs were even projected bodily upwards, as an apple-seed is shot from between the thumb and forefinger. Then the jam moved. Scotty Parsons' Jack Highland red jacket and the forty or fifty top men had reached the shore. By the wriggling activity which is a riverman's alone, they succeeded in pulling themselves beyond the snap of death's jaws. It was a narrow thing for most of them, and a miracle for some. Jimmy Powers, Archie Harris, Long Pine Jim, Big Nolan, and Mike Maloney, the brother of Brian, were in worse case. They were, as has been said, engaged in flattening part of the jam about eight or ten rods below the face of it. When they finally understood that the affair was one of escape, they ran towards the jam, hoping to climb out. Then the crash came. They heard the roar of the waters, the wrecking of the timbers. They saw the logs bulge outwards in anticipation of the break. Immediately they turned and fled, they knew not where. All but Jimmy Powers. He stopped short in his tracks and threw up his battered old felt hat, defiantly full into the face of the destruction hanging over him. Then, his bright hair blowing in the wind of death, he turned to the spectators standing helplessly and paralyzed forty feet above him. It was an instant's impression, the arrested motion seen in the flash of lightning, and yet to the onlookers it had somehow the quality of time. For perceptible duration it seemed to them they stared at the contrast between the raging hell above and the yet peaceable river-bed below. They were destined to remember that picture for the rest of their natural lives in such detail that each of them could almost have reproduced it photographically by simply closing his eyes. Yet afterwards, when they attempted to recall definitely the impression, they knew it could have lasted but a fraction of a second, for the reason that, clear and distinct in each man's mind, the images of the fleeing men retained definite attitudes. It was the instantaneous photography of events. So long, boys, they heard Jimmy Power's voice. Then the rope Thorpe had thrown fell across the cauldron of tortured waters and of tossing logs. End of chapter 48 Chapter 49 During perhaps ten seconds the survivors watched the end of Thorpe's rope trailing in the flood. Then the young man, with a deep sigh, began to pull it towards him. At once a hundred surmises, questions, ejaculations broke out. "'What happened?' cried Wallace Carpenter. "'What was that man's name?' asked the Chicago journalist with the eager instinct of his profession. "'This is terrible, terrible, terrible,' a white-haired physician from Marquette kept repeating over and over. A half-dozen ran towards the point of the cliff to peer downstream, as though they could hope to distinguish anything in that waste of flood-water. "'The dam's gone out,' replied Thorpe. "'I don't understand it. Everything was in good shape as far as I could see.' It didn't act like an ordinary break. The water came too fast. Why, it was just as dry as a bone until just as that wave came along. An ordinary break would have eaten through little by little before it burst, and Davis should have been able to stop it. This came all at once, 
as if the dam had disappeared. I don't see. His mind of the professional had already began to query causes. What about the men? asked Wallace. Is there something I can do? You can head a hunt down river, answered Thorpe. I think it is useless unless the water goes down. Poor Jimmy, he was one of the best men I had. I wouldn't have had this happen. The horror of the scene was at last beginning to filter through numbness into Wallace Carpenter's impressionable imagination. No, no, he cried vehemently. There is something criminal about it to me. I'd rather lose every log in the river. Thorpe looked at him curiously. It is one of the chances of war, said he, unable to refrain from the utterance of his creed. We all know it. I'd better divide the crew and take in both banks of the river, suggested Wallace, in his constitutional necessity of doing something. See if you can't get volunteers from this crowd, suggested Thorpe. I can let you have two men to show you trails. If you can make it that way, it will help me out. I need as many of the crew as possible to use this floodwater. Oh, Harry, cried Carpenter, shocked. You can't be going to work again today after that horrible sight, before we have made the slightest effort to recover the bodies? If the bodies can be recovered, they shall be, replied Thorpe quietly. But the drive will not wait. We have no dams to depend on now, you must remember, and we shall have to get out on freshet water. Your men won't work. I'd refuse just as they will, cried Carpenter, his sensibilities still suffering. Thorpe smiled proudly. You do not know them. They are mine. I hold them in the hollow of my hand. By Jove, cried the journalist in sudden enthusiasm, by Jove, that is magnificent. The men of the river crew had crouched down on their narrow footholds while the jam went out. Each had clung to his peavey, as is the habit of river men. Down the current past their feet swept the debris of flood. Soon logs began to swirl by, at first few, then many from the remaining rollways which the river had automatically broken. In a little time the eddy caught up some of the logs, and immediately the inception of another jam threatened. The rivermen, without hesitation, as calmly as though catastrophe had not thrown the weight of its moral terror against their stoicism, sprang, heavy in hand, to the insistent work. "'By Jove!' said the journalist again. "'That is magnificent. They are working over the spot where their comrades died.' Thorpe's face lit with gratification. He turned to the young man. "'You see,' he said in proud simplicity. With the added danger of freshet water, the work went on. At this moment Tim Shearer approached from inland, his clothes dripping wet, but his face retaining its habitual expression of iron calmness. "'Anybody caught?' was his first question as he drew near. Five men under the face,' replied Thorpe briefly. Shearer cast a glance at the river. He needed to be told no more. "'I was afraid of it,' said he. "'The rollways must be all broken out. It saved us that much, but the freshet water won't last long.' It's going to be a close squeak to get him out now. Don't exactly figure on what struck the dam. Thought first I'd go right up that way, but then I came down to see about the boys. Carpenter could not understand this apparent callousness on the part of men in whom he had always thought to recognize a fund of rough but genuine feeling. To him the sacredness of death was incompatible with the insistence of work. To these others the two, grim necessity, went hand in hand. "'Where were you?' asked Thorpe Shearer. "'On the pole trail. I got in a little, as you see.' In reality the foreman had had a close call for his life. A tightly rooted basewood alone had saved him. 
"'We'd better go up and take a look,' he suggested. "'The boys has things going here all right.' The two men turned towards the brush. "'Hi, Tim,' called a voice behind them. Red Jacket appeared, clambering up the cliff. "'Jack told me to give you this,' he panted, holding out a chunk of strangely twisted wood. "'Where'd he get this?' inquired Thorpe quickly. "'It's a piece of the dam,' he explained to Wallace, who had drawn near. "'Picked it out of the current,' replied the man. The foreman and his boss bent eagerly over the morsel. Then they stared with solemnity into each other's eyes. "'Dynamite, by God!' exclaimed Shearer. End of chapter 49 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com